Welcome to Play by Players, an MLSPA podcast. This show is brought to you by the players and is all about the players, both past and present, who have plied their trade in MLS. You'll hear about each player's journey into the game, their careers and life after the game, on the field and off. It's all on the table. Now here's your host, former MLS player, Bobby Boswell. Welcome to another episode of Play by Players. I am your host, Bobby Boswell. On today's episode, we are joined by a red-hot goal-scoring machine who currently plays for FC Cincinnati. He is in the golden boot race, aiming to be the league's top scorer. He recently featured in the MLS All-Star Game, playing against Liga MX's best players, while also competing and showing well, I might add, in the highly entertaining Skills Challenge competition. He is an MLS Cup champion. He is a U.S. Open Cup champion. He's a Campionas Cup champion from his time with Atlanta United. He has represented the United States at the youth level at very, very many tournaments. We'll get into that. Uh, he grew into a, a tall and muscular, beautiful man that I played with for six months. Uh, can't go a week without him being linked to a move in Mexico, a move in England, a move in Europe. Uh, or, you know, rumors have it he might be the lead guy to be the U.S. men's national team forward in the upcoming World Cup. Please welcome to the podcast, Brandon Vasquez. Hey, what's going on? What's going on, Bobby? How you doing? Good, man. Thank you. Uh, thank you for spending some time with us today. Um, you know, I feel like you're you're quite the popular guy these days. Everybody loves a goal scorer, and, and you're scoring a lot of goals. Do you feel that way? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've had a lot of people reaching out, a lot of people wanting to talk to me and uh, hear my story and, um, yeah, just get to know me a bit. So, yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah, I've been getting a lot of attention lately for sure. Well, I think it's great to see you. I remember in our short time uh, in Atlanta, I, I initially, right when I met you, I said, my goodness, this guy could be a model. And uh, Kenwin <laughs> Jones, he had a big problem with me saying that. And I said, uh, I said, Kenwin, you could be a successful model too. And uh, I, I think it was a, not only a talented team on the field, but we had a lot of good looking guys. If you uh, make an exception for Mikey Ambrose, but, <laughs> but uh <laughs> We, we won't go too far down the modeling route. We're going to talk to, uh, today about soccer, and your story starts uh, – you're in the land of Chile right now, but we're going to go to the Sunshine State. Um, talk to us a little bit. Tell us what Chula Vista, California is like. Yeah, you know, where I grew up, it was East Lake. It was like – my house was five minutes from the Olympic Training Center down there. So it was very beautiful suburbs of San Diego. Um you got a big lake there. You're 15 minutes from the border. You're 15 minutes from the beach. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a nice area where I grew up. And um, yeah, big, big. Uh, grew up in a big soccer home. So, um, so yeah, my whole life has revolved around that. Yeah, I feel like uh, half the guests we've had on this podcast are uh, are from the state of California, and I think that just is a testament to how good the soccer is out there. You, uh, you grew up with two brothers. You have an older brother and a younger brother. I think y'all all played soccer. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. We all played soccer growing up. And, and uh, you were a Ronaldinho fan. Is that, is that uh, my understanding? Yeah, early that's on? right. That's right. So my, I think my first Jersey uh, that I remember getting was a Ronaldinho Jersey from my parents or from my dad specifically. And um, I didn't know who he was, but, once I got that jersey, he started showing me YouTube videos of this guy, Ronaldinho, and 
I just fell in love. That's that sparked my passion for soccer. Yeah, I was gonna say that guy probably sparked uh, a ton of people's passion. Um, but you you talked about your dad. He's an important figure, especially in your soccer journey. And as your mom is too, I know I've seen some stuff where you credit her as well. Um, but you had a ball since you could walk, from what I understand. And like me, uh, I started playing soccer at the YMCA. You too started playing soccer at the YMCA. Is that yeah, right? That's right. And and uh, you quickly excelled as a as a parent. Now I have children that play youth soccer, and we hate the kids that score like ten goals a game. Um, <laughs> And we don't blame the kids. It's just not a lot of fun for ours. I'm willing to bet you were probably one of those kids, right? I was that kid, unfortunately, for all the other kids. <laughs> well, it worked out for you because then they moved you up, right? You just kept escalating. Uh, you say, oh, I'll play up a year and then up a year. And, and you end up playing up quite a, quite a few years, right? Uh, yeah, I ended up playing on my brother's team. He's three years older than me. So I played there for a while. And then I always played up an age or a couple ages. So, yeah. And then before you could really get, you know, a lot of guys are tied to specific clubs in the cities they grew up in. Um, your story, uh, we, we talked about this, you know, before we started this podcast, but your story is just so unique because um, really, instead of being tied to a, a youth club, you have an opportunity that I believe was brought forward by your father. Um, yep. You know, tell, tell the listeners at age 13, uh, what, what happens in your life? What decision do you decide to make? Yeah, so at 13, I was I was playing for San Diego Surf, my club team, and I was training three, four times a week, you know, and I think at that point, my my dad had like knew I I was going to take the soccer route of doing that full time and I had a real chance of going pro. So um, he decided to take me to Tijuana to train over there with um, with Academy for Cholos. And yeah, I stayed. I, I, I liked it. The training sessions were very intense um, and they were every day of the week, you know, so it wasn't three, four times a week. It was every day of the week. And, you know, I mean, with all those hours I put in of training, it, it's paid off for sure. I mean, I was well, playing well, against. Yeah, I was say, before you, you act like um, all that you went way ahead. I, talk to us about at 13, right, because you you end up playing there um, for, for several years. Just tell people that don't know. Um, how long does it take to get from Chula Vista to, you know, you're, you're essentially crossing borders every day to yeah. go to training. Um, I know at a young age, I believe your parents took you, but as you got older, it started being like, like my parents dropped me off outside the high school and I walked through the high school, your parents dropped you off at the border and, and you had to take an Uber to practice. Tell people, yeah. you know, tell people about the journey and what your parents had to do in terms of getting you to and from practice. Yeah, so it's it's crazy. I would wake up at five in the morning, um, five thirty, leave the house. It's like a 15, 20 minute drive to the border. The first couple of years, so 13, 14, um, my parents would drive me into Tijuana. So it was 20 minutes to the border, another 10 minutes to the stadium. Um, and crossing into Mexico, there's there's like there's no one really checking you the way there is coming back into california from mexico so border patrol is very loose you just drive in like nothing and so it probably takes this takes me like 30 35 minutes to get to the to the stadium to the training ground and yeah i would have my training session it would last like two two hours two and a half hours and my parents would drive me back across the border but the thing is to cross in the united states 
everybody's trying to cross into the United States. There's a line every single day. So sometimes we would do an hour, two hours, even three or four hours, like on really bad days. And um, just to cross back into San Diego. And then at that point, I was doing school online. I would cross back around like 1 p.m. And I would have to do school online for a couple hours. And then I would go train again. I would go do individual sessions in the in the afternoons, evenings. And uh, after that, dinner and then repeat the same day, repeat the same thing the next day. So pretty yeah. good. Pretty wild. And, and, and when did your parents accept that you were going to start doing I believe you did my academy and it's the county collaborative charter school program. Like how how did that come about where they just understood your passion and, and you, they knew this was going to be your thing and, and you were able to, to do this program? Yeah. So for them, it was like I had to finish high school regardless. Um, I didn't even know that it was an option to 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 get out. You know, <laughs> I, I never really liked school. If it was up to me, I would have probably not wanted to finish, but I'm glad I did. Um, but yeah, they put me into this uh, online online school and I finished high school that way. Awesome. Talk to me a little bit about Club Tijuana, right? You you the standards are probably you know san diego surf great soccer program don't put them down uh, mm -hmm. i'm not putting them down they've won uh, probably as many national championships as any other club um but talk to me about the level over at club tijuana and then i, I want you to tell our listeners about so how long some of these trips that you'd go on were uh, when y'all had when you had games across the uh, across the country yeah so yeah i mean at surf like I said, training three, four times a week, it was good, but it just like, wasn't, um, I don't know the, the intensity wasn't the way it was when I went to Mexico, you know, some of the kids I was playing with, this was their way out of poverty. And so their hunger to succeed was more than anything I had ever seen in, in club soccer. So instantly the intensity, the hunger, all the training sessions, everything was just, at a much higher intensity and quality and you could tell like these kids like are it's their it's their way out of poverty you know so it, it was a it was a different way to see things for me first going over there because you know um I just didn't have that hunger the way they did so it took me a while to adjust and to play at the same intensity and and figure out how to succeed in in a atmosphere like that. And um, it took me a little while to adapt. But once I did, um, yeah, I just fit in with the team, started scoring right away and went up an age group. So I was playing U15s there when I was 13, 14. And then at 15, I, I went up to U17s. And um, yeah, I just kept climbing up the ranks around 16 i started playing with the second team and that's when trips across the country started getting pretty crazy because um we wouldn't travel on flights we would travel on charter buses with that were just seats they weren't like they wouldn't recline there was no beds and we would play like in sinaloa this is a 28 hour drive from tijuana so we would take off like after training one day and we wouldn't get there until like the next day at night. So it, it was pretty crazy. We would, I mean, everybody was just watching movies. We would stop at gas stations every couple hours and everybody would just get snacks. And 
it was it was crazy. And then we would get to these places, you know, and play on these dirt fields that were just like, I don't know, like you fall, you're you're injuring yourself, you're cutting yourself like you're falling on rocks pretty much. So it, it was pretty crazy. It was a crazy experience. And at the time, I didn't really think it was that crazy. I was just like, it was my passion. I wanted to play. I wanted to score. I was preparing myself for games. But now thinking back at it, it's like, well, I don't know if I would ever do that again. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it probably prepared you really well for, um, you know, you, you just I know there was the uh, the Open Cup game in Charleston, right, where they, oh, they yeah. end up, you have to drive back. You know, you say the field's not suitable. We fly, we drive back to Atlanta, play at, I think, Kennesaw, or, you know, it's like 24 yeah. hours later. And I'm imagining you're thinking, I've done this. I've done this several times. It's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. That one didn't seem bad at all to me. Yeah, so it's all about perspective. I think it's really cool. Um, at what point um, At what point did you start training or realizing you were going to get an opportunity with the first team? So I think um, when I was 16, I had, I had gotten pulled up to fill in spots for the first team. And the coaches had really liked me. They would talk to me a lot and tell me, like, basically tell me that they really liked me as a player, that to keep working hard. And, um, yeah, at 17, I was playing with the U-20s, and we had made it to the finals of our league, or or league on Mackeys for the youth teams. And um, throughout the whole playoffs, before that final, I was killing it with the U20, scoring goals, playing great. And so I had a feeling the next preseason I might get called into the first team, and I did. So at 17, I got called in for uh, for the first team, and I ended up making my debut that year. Yeah, and you, uh, your debut, I think, 17 in the Copa MX tournament, um, you know, was that, a, was that a dream come true? Did you have any idea? Did your family know you were going to potentially make an appearance? Were they able to go to the game? Or, or what, what was it like for, for you and your family to kind of realize this is happening? Yeah, for me, it, it felt surreal. You know, I had never been um, – I had never had a home game at the, at the Estadio Caliente before, like with the first team. So it was – it felt – similar to my experience of being with the U20s team and the second team playing there at the stadium. But then, yeah, you know, you get out there, the stadium's packed. Um, your team scores a goal early on. There's beers getting thrown all over the place. So it was it was something surreal that I hadn't experienced before. My family was there, so it was a special night, 100%. And was Herrera the, the coach at that time? Yep, I made my debut under him. And to, just for those that don't know, this is an absolute legend in the in the coaching world. Um, he's Piojo's one of my favorite memes and the, the gifs <laughs> that are on the on soccer internet. Um, yeah. But just just talk about um, you know we'll talk a little bit later about how incredible your coaching tree is. But um, you know, as a you know your first real professional coach, or one of them being um, being Herrera, what what was that like for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, I grew up watching him on tv whenever club america was playing he was known as uh the crazy mexican coach that was so passionate and knee sliding across the field when his team would score so i knew him as that but i'd never really like had one-on-one -on -one conversations with him you know i was always a young player coming up and 
kind of uh, the older players were telling me what to do. And I wasn't really the one to be like speaking out to anything. So I was only, I was always like, you know, timid, the young kid that was there and, yeah, so I I don't have like a personal experience with him, but yeah, it was uh it was great seeing his training sessions. That's awesome. Well, you you kind of hinted at it um in the previous comments about the uh, playing for the U20s, and um you've had a pretty extensive youth career playing at the different levels, uh, U17, U19, U20, U23. Uh, you played a lot of games. You scored a lot of goals. Uh, you went to a ton of tournaments. Just checking the tournaments out, I'm sure I'm going to miss some here. You know, there was a tournament in the Czech Republic. You had tournaments in France, Slovakia, uh, the Kotif. I'm not probably saying that right, but the Kotif tournament. Uh, that was, uh, you know, in the age of the Internet, we can go see that viral goal that you scored on the, the host nation Spain, which is oh, crazy yeah. because they ended up winning that whole tournament. That was also a crazy ending to that tournament, which was also a very viral video with the bench clearing incident. Um, <laughs> yet tournament in Costa Rica. Uh, the Stevan Selly Vilotic tournament in Serbia and the Ukraine. You had the CONCAF championship on Honduras, the, universe, uh, the U-17 World Cup in Chile. Um, I feel like these are once-in-a-lifetime opportunities if you go on one of those trips, right? Um, just just talk to me about at a young age, you're, you're gone around the world. You've seen other places that people have never been, uh, never going to go, um, you know, and you're, you're there representing your country. Yeah, for me, it was it was all the same mentality everywhere I went. It was just training, preparing to play uh, at the best possible, the best I possibly could. And, you know, it was incredible experiences because I went to a lot of beautiful places that uh, that obviously soccer took me to and played against teams that were, I mean, world class, you know, all these uh, all these international teams teams and um it, it i mean yeah for me it was to think back on it it seems also surreal but um definitely experiences uh that i i still cherish to this day i mean getting to play in tournaments like that not everybody gets to do that and and it was something beautiful for sure well i know uh for the people watching this on youtube i'm wearing a ridiculous uh u.s shirt here uh, this was a teammate. A teammate of mine had a side hustle. I paid forty dollars for this shirt that has a V-neck and no sleeves. Um, so I won't say his name, but it rhymes with Chris Cord. Um, I like to wear this in support of you. I've got your other jerseys behind me here, um, but I like to bring up the fact that you scored some goals in the the World Cup in Chile. Y'all lost to Nigeria in the group play, and they end up beating Mali to win the whole tournament. But you scored in two different games, and I believe. The only other guy that scored goals in that tournament for the U.S. was Christian Pulisic. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. You've got some experience scoring goals at the world stage. We always like to make things happen. We manifest it by putting it out into the world. Um, <laughs> obviously, playing in these tournaments, seeing these guys um, and playing with the likes of, again, we mentioned Christian, Tyler Adams, Haji Wright, Weston McKinney, Austin Trusty, Luca De La Torre, Jordi Mihaljevic. Um, there's plenty of other names on there, very talented American players. Uh, those guys, some of them are currently in the national team mix. You clearly have a relationship with them. You have chemistry with them. Um, what's it like in terms of seeing that as a guy that's hungry, eager to get there? Um, is that the standard you're kind of holding yourself to? 
Absolutely, you know, and it it was very frustrating for me for uh, a lot of moments in my career, especially like when I first went to Atlanta. I had I'd never really been um, on the bench before, so I didn't really have like patience for it when I first went there. And I was always comparing myself to all my other national team teammates and seeing them all playing with their clubs and succeeding and growing and and getting out there and it was frustrating for me because I felt like I was always like on the, like my, my career was in a freezer when I went to Atlanta, I felt like all my teammates that I was growing with on national team, they were all playing and getting better. And I was just sitting on the bench and getting frustrated. And so of course uh, I still compare myself to them and I think I, I could be there a hundred percent. Okay. Well, you talk about going to Atlanta. You were a discovery signing uh, for Atlanta FC in, uh, in the inaugural season uh, with Tata Martino. Mm-hmm. Um, the rumor was what I heard was uh, Bocanegra spoke with one of your national team coaches who uh, another uh, national team player, Brad Friedel, recommended yeah. you to them and, and the rest is history. Um, were you pretty excited? You know, you're at Tijuana, but um, you find out you have the option to go to Atlanta. Were you were you pretty excited about going there? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, I had uh, I had spoken with Bocanegra at one of the national team camps I had, and he was basically showing me all the plans that the club had, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium they were building, the training ground they were building, bringing in Tata Martino. Um, and, you know, it sounded like a very exciting project, and – yeah, I had been at Tijuana for five years. I had already made my debut, and I I thought I could go, and uh, it would be the next stepping stone in my career to go to Europe because that's that's ultimately what uh, what my goal was and still is. So that that's what I thought was uh, the best uh, move for my career. Yeah, and you go into an Atlanta team that um, is completely loaded. It's a loaded roster. It's a loaded staff. Um, Talk to me a little bit about, I always ask guys, you know, who made it easy on you, um, you know, in the the initial phase? Was there anyone that kind of took you under their wing? And I know that, you know, for a guy like you, you know, you, you've been in the league, it seems, you know, you, you a veteran per se, but you're still very young, especially like young compared to when I came in the league, we're almost the same age as you are now as when I joined. Mm -hmm. So um, you didn't have the college experience where you lived on your own where you had to learn how to cook, you had to learn how to manage your time, uh, you had to learn all these different things. What what was uh, what were some of the challenges? And then did anyone help you get through that tough time? Yeah, you know, like, um, I felt like I had already a lot of experience of being on my own, being away from family, you know, when you're with national team and you're traveling away for weeks at a time or going to residency to prepare for the U-17 World Cup you you kind of have those experiences already in those moments so when I first went to Atlanta it was it all felt it all felt familiar you know I mean obviously I I wasn't getting to see my family every two weeks but I had I had felt that um that experience of being on my own and taking care of myself paying for my bills doing all that kind of stuff and and yeah so I didn't think it was hard at all I I felt like uh I had been through it and it was just another, another phase, you know, I, I didn't find it complicated at all. All right. Well, you, you had some patches of playing. Um, you had, uh, you had some, some times where 
we talked about the U.S. Open Cup. That was you played some games there, but you also were kind of sent down to the USL teams. It was like two different iterations year to year. But yeah. um, you always hung in there. Um, I remember, you know, when I came in, the we trainings were really intense for especially for guys that weren't playing. I think I did like 22 days of fitness straight. You were part of some of that, but you usually traveled miles and I just did training. I remember specifically you skinned me a bunch in, in a couple trainings, um, you know, probably prevented me from playing more than seven minutes like I did. But I I got nothing but love for you. Um, Tata was a was a tough coach in terms of um, he was great at communicating, but he used other people to communicate messages. Um, what 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 did you take away from from your time with Tata? Yeah, I mean, my experience there with him was uh, yeah, he was a, an amazing coach, amazing team coach. Um, he he was very intense in training sessions and that pushed everybody to be intense and um and to be the best players they could really be and that really pushed everybody around them and created this culture that if you weren't training at the best that you weren't going to have an opportunity to play so that's how i felt the training sessions were and i think uh i mean that took that team to be a championship team you know i mean the squad that we had the intensity the quality and the performances that we would have it week in week out were were nothing short of incredible so yeah it was uh it was all a culture that started from him yeah and, and you you kind of got trapped behind a guy that was you know people are going to talk about him breaking records um he's kind of cooled off a little bit whether it's injury or uh, quality of the people around him and joseph martinez um I, I always say you know i played for a team that had brian ching as the starter um, and guys like Chris Wondolowski had to go to another team to have success. Kai Kamara got traded to another team to have success. And, um, you know, I always say one thing those guys had in common was they had a coach named Dominic Kinnear. We'll get into that in a little bit. But I always say history books will tell you who ends up uh, being the, the most remembered name. And so in your case, it's not necessarily that uh, you weren't ready or, or that it was more about opportunity. Right. And, and you know, you can justify saying Joseph was the guy at the time, but that didn't mean that you aren't a, a great forward. And now we're kind of seeing that in your new role. Just what was your mindset in that period where obviously you want to learn from him, but you're a forward, you're an ego guy. You need to be scoring goals. You want to be contributing to the winning. You don't, you know, you not only do you want to start, you want to score and you want to score four goals if you can. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like you pretty much uh, know that right on the head. Um, I mean, like I, I had mentioned, I had I didn't know what it was like to to sit on the bench before I went there, and then seeing Joseph come in and I mean scoring two goals a game, it was it was something ridiculous. It was something that I had never seen before. Um, so obviously, I I understood my position and where I stood with the team, and and I understood like as long as I'm in Atlanta I'm, and this guy's here healthy, and I'm not gonna have my opportunity. So. For me, it was just um, when I was showing up to train every day, it was giving my best to be ready for my next opportunity or if I was to get five, ten minutes here and there every other game. But, yeah, it was a very frustrating couple years for me. And uh, even though I have a lot of beautiful memories in Atlanta and um, a lot of a couple championships uh yeah like i said beautiful memories i i knew like i if i wanted to grow as a player i needed to 
to take a step somewhere else to actually have an opportunity to to really grow. I, I wasn't going to have that there. Yeah, and, and you go from Tata, you win with Tata, Frank DeBoer comes in, you win with Frank. Um, but you obviously decide to, to make a decision. Uh, you ask to be, uh, to be moved. They leave you unprotected. And then Nashville selects you in the expansion draft with the intentions of trading you to where you are now and um, mm-hmm. FC Cincinnati. Did you have any idea that this was was going on when you when you asked to be uh, to be moved or, or was it all a shock to you? Yeah, yeah, I knew. I knew um, the day before the before the draft, I, I had gotten a call from my agent, asked me if I wanted to go to Cincinnati. And I said, yeah, if that's uh, where my best chances are to be playing and have a lot of minutes as growth and then, then absolutely I would want to go there. And uh, and I knew Cincinnati was like um, the last place team at, at the season before. And um, I, I thought like I, I could for sure go there and, and help the team become winning a winning team. And yeah, they they told me that they already had a a deal with Nashville that as soon as uh, they would pick me up, they would trade me to Cincinnati. Okay. And then, you know, you, you kind of hinted at the good memories of Atlanta and um, you know, you've, I've seen some stuff with you where you talked about Bobby Dodd, the first time seeing the, the New York uh, Red Bull game. And then I was there for the first, you know, the uh, Mercedes Benz experience, just an incredible atmosphere, but I haven't been to Cincy yet. I I have a lot of friends and I know a lot of people that have, I hear, what y'all have there is, um, you know, just as special. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, can you talk to me what it's like to go from one of the best atmospheres in MLS to arguably uh, another one of the best atmospheres in MLS? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so like you said, first going to Bobby Dodd and uh, it was, it was a stadium that was just so insanely loud. You know, I'd never heard something that loud before. I'd never been to a stadium that was that loud before. So that was an incredible experience. And then moving to moving to Mercedes-Benz Stadium, also a beautiful stadium. I mean, uh, probably one of the best stadiums in the United States or in the world. So that was beautiful. But I felt like it was always like a little too big. You know, it was it was not a soccer specific stadium. It was a football stadium. So then coming to Cincinnati to a soccer specific stadium, it was Cincinnati's stadium, Cincinnati's fans, the way we pack the stadium and everybody shows up every single game, regardless of results. Uh, it's, it's nothing, it's nothing short of beautiful. You know I mean? You show up there every week and it's, it's special every single time. So it's, I've been blessed to be able to play at these incredible stadiums and have incredible uh, fans. Yeah, and, and you talked about going in, you know, when you're coming in, the the, the team was in last place. Uh, the standard was very different in Atlanta uh, where they were competing for trophies every every year and, and competing to win, you know, not only competing to win, expecting to win, expecting to play a certain way in winning. Uh, how is it going from that standard, which is kind of falling off, if we're being honest, but we won't talk about that, um, to where you, where you are now, where – um, you know, Cincinnati was just celebrating, you know, hoping to win a game. And, and you know, that was kind of the environment. You go from one really high level to uh, the expectations are just just very different. How did you handle that? Yeah, you know, it was it was it was really hard. It was really hard as well, because obviously you come from a team that's winning week in, week out to a team that's not really winning at all. 
So it was, it was very difficult. And I ended up finding myself in the exact same situation. I was in Atlanta where I, we had a high, high paid forward in front of me and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't getting minutes. Um, and just on the bench, the same way I was in Atlanta. And, you know, it was very frustrating. You know, sometimes it was very hard to find motivation to, to go into the training ground because regardless of how good I was training, I didn't feel I was, I was uh, getting a chance at, at playing either. If I was, it was five, 10 minutes at the end of the game. And a lot of those times, those games were 2-0, 3-0 us being down and it, the other teams just closing in. And, you know, it, it was very hard, but, but, you know, I mean, where we are this year, it's, it's been incredible this year. So uh, I'm glad I stuck through that. Yeah. And you kind of dealt with a coaching carousel early on. Uh, you end up finishing the the season last year, 2021. Uh, my alma mater legend, Tyrone Marshall comes in and, you know, whether, uh, whether it's his idea or, or um, you know, Chris Albright's uh, you end up going to playing both you and uh, Brenner up front, or you play two forwards up front. Um, you know, you have a ton of success there. It's a great way to end the season for not only the fans and that there's some optimism for the following season, but for you personally, did you feel like that was a, a real big boost going into the off season? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I finished, um, I finished the season off strong and I, I felt like um, I was going to have a good opportunity at the beginning of this year and I just needed to take it and, um, and run with it. And I feel like I've done that pretty well this year. Yeah, and, and then you get new coaches, right? You get Pat coming in. Pat Noonan was a great forward. I hated playing against him. He, he always paired really well with, um, you know, Twelman or whoever else he was playing with. So I think it's kind of fitting that you're playing for a head coach that really understands not just the, you know, he was always a smart guy too, right? So uh, mm -hmm. you play for him. Uh, my old roommate, Kenny Arena, is there. And then you've got my, my old coach for six seasons, Dom Kinnear, who I mentioned earlier, coaches – uh, he's coached a ton of people. He was a defensive player, but he spends a ton of time working on, uh, if a forward wants to work, uh, he's your guy, right? He's going to give you whatever you need to make you successful. And, um, I was really excited when, when I saw he was going to be there with you because I knew how hard you worked in Atlanta. And I knew that Dom does all these little things. I'm sure you're sick of hearing make someone's got to get across that near post. But there's a reason that guys that he coaches score a lot of goals if, if they're willing to put the work in. Um, you feel like it was, you know, you've had some great coaches in the past. I didn't even get into the national team coaches you had. But do you feel like this group of coaches has really given you um, the attention you need to, to thrive? Absolutely. Um, this coaching staff has been incredible from the day they've gotten here. They really switched everything around. And like you said, Dom has been working with me every single day, whether it's video to staying extra and doing finishing, hold up play. He's, he's been helping me every step of the way and giving me that confidence that, uh, that I need sometimes, you know? So, yeah, I mean, having all of them is, has been, uh, has been awesome. Just awesome. And Pat's very clear with the way he wants us to play. And I think the team very, understands that very well. Um, so so, yeah, I've enjoyed every moment with this coaching staff this year. And as I mentioned at the at the offset, um, you know, you're you're in the race for the golden boot. You're up there with the with all the big boys in the league. You got to go to the all star game. Um, I, I kind of uh, I 
I smiled when I saw like they all the all the attacking players were were uh, making over a million bucks a year in the All Star game, and and you were uh, you were the only guy that wasn't. But I think that's a test. That's a testament to one your meteor meteoric rise. That shouldn't have put that word in this uh, podcast, but it was just how fast you came up. And it's also kind of a the state of where the the player salaries are nowadays, which is really cool. Um, you are the club record for you hold the club record for goals scored, which is really cool. I think you have a really good chance to, you know, uh, submit yourself and set some record that maybe could become unapproachable for a long, long time. And recently you were rewarded with a new contract, which I, uh, I feel is well-deserved. So congratulations on that. That's got to really feel good for you knowing uh, they're, they're making a commitment to you in that city for, for a little bit longer. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah, everybody has shown me a lot of love, and the All Star Game was was incredible. Being the share, being able to share the field with all these big name players, I mean, it it was awesome. You know, I mean, I grew up watching Chicharito and Bella, and being able to play with them on the field, it was it was awesome. It was an incredible experience. So yeah, being being at this level, it's it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's uh, it's been a lo- been a lot of work that is finally coming to fruition, but. But yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to staying in Cincinnati a long time and uh, keep breaking records. And it had to be cool as a as you know, you spent a lot of time in Mexico playing down there. It had to be a lot of fun also to play against Liga MX. I, I was at that. You know, I've gone to the last two of these things. Um, mm-hmm. They're just really a lot of fun. I think everyone enjoys it on both sides. Um, did you get? kind of a, I know it's, it's a battle you're playing against them. You don't want to get shown up, but it had to be a lot of fun, especially for you considering uh, your, your background. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like I had actually been called into a couple Mexican national team camps uh, before I went to play with us. And I met a, met a lot of players that were there um, at the league. I'm and I had gone to play with the couple that played with me in Tijuana. So um, yeah, I had, like it was nice seeing old faces and uh, yeah, obviously that rivalry between us and Mexico has always been there. So it was very competitive. Well, I, uh, I told you before we started, I wasn't going to talk about um, you having to make a decision between which national team to play. And I'm still not because I don't want to put anything out in the world and have it uh, turn into a reality. Um, I think it's deserving on either one. Um, and, and I think you've earned the right for, for either team. Um, the interesting thing that I saw, which I got a kick out of was uh, the transfer market website, which uh, for those that don't know, there's a great New York Times story by Rory Smith. If you're a soccer nerd and want to know how the internet's affecting real world decisions for player valuations, uh, go read that article. But I'll summarize the one that happened with you. Uh, they had your valuation, I think, at like $550,000. So uh, I believe it was Chibos that came in and just said, wow, that, that's, a, that's a really uh, achievable value for us. We're going to go ahead and buy them. And uh, since he had to counter and add a zero to it, so that'd be pretty <laughs> cool. Overnight, you went from uh, you know $550,000 transfer fee to a $5,500,000 transfer fee. I mean, are you getting a pretty good kick out of some of these things that are, uh, that are coming out now that, now that you're, uh, you're in the limelight? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, my agent was letting me know all all that stuff while it was going on. And, you know, for a second, I thought, oh my, damn, I might be going back to Mexico. But, um, but yeah, you know, all that stuff, like, coming to light and, 
like you said, New York Times be posting that. I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it was awesome. Um, you you're also gaining a lot of interest um, from overseas. I think the the rumor at the time of this podcast. I think your old teammate Tyler Adams is putting in a good word for you in in England. Uh, there's there's rumors about Leeds. You expressed on this podcast and in other things you've done uh, that you want to be in in Europe or really in the best leagues. I, I feel like your goal is to be playing in meaningful Champions League type games. Is that is that accurate? Absolutely. You know, I just want to push myself to be the best athlete, best professional, best person I could be, and um, hopefully I can be there one day. And and you know, as far as the national team stuff goes, we I talked about how you're you're in the mix. Um, you know, it's one thing to be considered uh, for the camp. You know, people are are blowing it up even more, saying you're going to be the starter. Um, you know, what are you doing? Uh, just obviously, I, I I hope as a, a fan of yours and a former teammate that you get an opportunity at least to go into camp. Um, are you are you uh, you know? you have to be somewhat excited, somewhat nervous um, about that whole process if, if it comes. Yeah, you know, like, that's all, uh, that's all out of my control if I do or if I don't. Um, obviously, I want to be there. I, I would love to. And um, all I can do right now that's in my control is show up to training every day with Cincinnati and give my best and win games and score goals and be at – the best possible point that I could be. And if I get called in and I'll be ready for it, but yeah, all, all of that, that's out of my control. I, I try to not stress out about it because I can't do anything about it. Well, I, uh, I love what you say. You always say we'll cross that bridge uh, when it gets there. And, and, you know, I think that a lot of young people can, uh, can learn from, from, you know, your story and that, um, you know, you, you can be successful and not get an opportunity. And then it's really about what happens when you do get that opportunity. And um, I feel like you're, you're really seizing it. I don't like that. People are acting like this world cup cycle. It's like do or die for you. You're so young that, um, you know, again, I always refer back to Wando where, you know, you could be a household name to your, your 35, 36 years old. And if you're a smart forward um, you know, it's like a smart goalie, a, a healthy goalie, you can play for a really long time in, in your position as long as you're, you're scoring goals. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that immediate success would be great, but I also understand this isn't going to make or break you. Uh, if you make it, it doesn't mean you're going to have, you're going to have to keep earning it every day. And if, if you don't make this cycle um, you've got plenty of, of other years ahead of you to, to make the cycle. Do you, do you feel that's kind of an accurate assessment? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if I don't make it, then obviously I'll, I'll, I'll be a little uh, hurt about it. But, um, but you know, there's still a long path uh, ahead, and I gotta, I gotta prove every day that uh, I should have been there. Yeah, I agree. I think you'll be fine. Well, I think you're gonna get an opportunity. We'll see how you do. So Brandon <laughs> keeps us surprised of what's going on in his life via his social media accounts. Uh, even though he has spelled his name wrong on his Instagram account, he is on uh, he is on different forms of uh, he is on different forms of social media, letting us know he's got some great content, um, photos of of what's going on in his life, soccer related. Um, he's got his family on there. It's it's a lot of fun. I recommend you guys check him out. Um, you know, I want to wish you luck in this playoff push. You guys have have kind of uh, I think wowed the league. And everyone is uh, they they're kind of afraid of you because y'all are y'all are a dangerous team. I think on any given day you can go out and and 
put a uh, put a lot of goals on someone. Um, you know, I hope that you do get to represent the country again at the highest level. Um, I think you will. And uh, the most important thing uh, that most people might not know is, uh, I think I want to wish you good luck getting married at the end of the year. Um, <laughs> obviously, you know, you might hope that the World Cup uh, has an impact on that, but either way, that's a very big milestone for you. So congratulations. Um, I just wanted to thank you for your time today. I think you're a household name that's going to be around for a long, long time. So I thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, that's Brandon Vasquez, everybody. Thank you for having me, Bobby. Thank you for listening to Play by Players. Visit playbyplayerspod.com for more episodes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a production of the MLSPA. Learn more at mlsplayers.org.